So here we are again looking at the book of Daniel and what an amazing story it tells. Daniel born into nobility in Israel some 600 years before the birth of Christ. He's young and clever and handsome and with three others from the royal court all in their teens they're forced into exile into the city of Babylon that's just south of Baghdad in modern day Iraq. The four of them, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah, are renamed after Babylonian gods and trained in the king's service. But here through the pain and suffering of seeing their nation destroyed and friends and people enslaved, Daniel and the three don't just survive. They excel in the midst of their suffering and difficulty. They're not just a bit better. They were head and shoulders above all their compatriots. In the king's words, 10 times better. You know, when I was growing up, my grandparents on my father's side were immigrants into the UK and poverty stricken. I remember my dad recounting to me how he and his brother felt that the only way out of their poverty was to study. So as school kids, they used to get up in the middle of the night to study. My dad became a surgeon and my uncle a dentist. They both excelled out of their difficult early start and, and their drive for a better life in the midst of a hard start. Now, for Daniel and his three friends, it's difficult to even imagine what they went through because Daniel doesn't recount all of the force of the hardships and struggles that they went through. Even just the 700 mile journey from Jerusalem to Baghdad in one of the forced deportations is not detailed. But what is amazing is that they excelled in the midst of those difficult circumstances. And Daniel served at least five different kings in the royal courts and served for well into his 80s. What an example of faithfulness to God through unwanted or difficult circumstances. So here we are in chapter 7. Daniel's in his late 60s, early 70s, and God gives him this dream. Firstly, I'd like to take a look at the dream and the kingdoms described. Secondly, how this dream shows that God is in control over the nations. And thirdly, how Jesus saw himself in this dream and how God's people, as God's people, we share in that future. And that gives us hope, even in the midst of what we're going through today. So firstly, chapter 7. Philip Towner, a biblical scholar, is quoted as saying that chapter 7 is the most important chapter in the whole book of Daniel. The way that the book is written has its focal point in this dream. This dream is therefore the pinnacle or high point of the whole book. 
The dream is split into two parts, verses 1 to 14 of the dream, and then verses 15 to 27 are where Daniel asks an angelic being for further information and further detail. But even in verses 1 to 14, there is also a focal point, and it's the throne scene in verses 9 and 10. So Daniel has a focus. The book of Daniel has a focus in chapter 7. And chapter 7 has a focus, and it's verses 9 to 10. Let me read them again. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So whatever else you might hear this morning, this book of Daniel wants us to know that our God is on the throne, that he will judge the nations and that each one of us must come before him and give an account. But it is our Father on the throne. So this dream in Daniel 7 is like a grand vision of world history from 600 BC until the arrival of the Kingdom of God, and it points to the ultimate fulfilment of that. In this first scene, Daniel sees four terrifying beasts coming out of the chaos of the sea and is churned up by the four winds of heaven. For us in our day, we are more used to the nations being portrayed or symbolised in the form of a bird or an animal. If one thinks of the US, one might think of the golden eagle. If one thinks of England or Britain, you might think of the British lions or a bulldog. But in verse 17, we're told that these beasts are successive kingdoms that will arise. But these beasts are not like natural created beasts, as we see in uh, Genesis 1 that talks about the created order um, according to their kind. These beasts are hybrids. They're mutant animals. In Old Testament Leviticus terms, they are deemed unclean. Daniel sees a lion, but with wings like an eagle. A bear raised up on one side, but with three ribs in its mouth. A leopard with four wings and four heads. And the last beast is so terrifying, Daniel, that he can't even describe it. It's like nothing he's ever seen before. And all he can do is focus on its teeth and its horns. These beasts appear to be in control. They're wild, savage and violent, paying no attention to God and persecuting God's people. And this is how God sees these earthly kingdoms. They're like animals, self-seeking, self-serving, cruel and killing all in their path. And Daniel is absolutely terrified as he sees their destructive behaviour, crushing, devouring 
and trampling. This is a completely different perspective from how these same four kingdoms are portrayed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2. In Daniel 2, the four kingdoms are portrayed from man's perspective, described in terms of a massive, dazzling statue made up of precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, down to the feet of iron and clay. Man sees these kingdoms as a vast idol to be worshipped, but God sees them differently. Lord, will you help us to see things from your perspective? Even over the past 100 years, how many empires have arisen that we can look at like animals, like these four animals? And I wonder how God sees our nation and the world's superpowers of today. Looking back over history, we can see that this first beast, the lion with wings, scholars believe to be the Babylonian Empire that ran from approximately 605 BC to 539 BC. In the dream in chapter 2, of which Daniel in mirrors chapter 7, Nebuchadnezzar is represented as the head and shoulders of gold, the first empire. Jeremiah the prophet refers to Nebuchadnezzar as both a lion in Jeremiah 4 verse 7 and an eagle in Jeremiah 4, uh, 48 verse 40. The second empire, the bear raised up on one side, is considered to be the Medo-Persian empire that rose up in 539 BC and lasted for over 200 years to 331 BC. This empire was indeed made of two parts, the kings of Persia being the greater of the two. The third beast, the leopard with four wings, scholars believe to be the Greek empire that ran for, to 663 BC. The leopard being a really apt description for Alexander the Great of Macedonia who conquered the Medo-Persian Empire in the lightning speed of just 10 years. And after his death, the empire was divided by the heads, the four generals that Alexander had. And finally, this fourth terrifying beast is thought to be the Roman Empire with its Roman legions marching across the world with its ten horns referencing the different parts of the empire. This mega beast. And it's out of this fourth empire that God establishes his kingdom. How amazing it is that God decided that that was the time to establish his kingdom. In the setting of the Roman Empire, an empire so terrifying that God portrayed it as a beast that Daniel couldn't even describe. It's into that empire that Jesus entered our world. So secondly, God is on the throne. Our nation and the nations around us like to think that they're in control. But this dream shows us that it is our God who is in control, who is on the throne over every people, language, over every nation. 
and one day everyone will face God and the books will be opened. Right from the start of this dream, Daniel sees the four winds of heaven over the chaos where the four beasts arise out of the sea. Throughout antiquity, the sea has been seen as a picture of chaos, the home of monsters. But God's presence is above the chaos. God is over these four kingdoms. With the Babylonian Empire, God humbles Nebuchadnezzar. His wings are plucked off and God makes him live like an animal for seven years. You can read the story in chapter four until Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses and praises, honours and glorifies God. Chapter four, verse 33 says, his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and nails like the claws of a bird. Even this king in charge of a superpower has to bow to our God. We see the bear in verse 5 is raised up on one side and he's told what to do, told to get up. The leopard is given authority to rule in verse 6. These beasts may represent kingdoms, but their authority and their rule is set by God. I don't understand this world dynamic, but God is in control. He has not abandoned his world even when these nations are on the rampage. As we have read out in verses 9 and 10, the court scene, our God is pure and holy and fire flows from before him to refine and purify. The fire that flows in that river before the throne is to bring judgment to these nations. The Ancient of Days a description of the God of Israel takes his place and the heavenly court is convened before a countless heavenly host. Where have we seen that before? I love the fact that the throne has wheels. How amazing is that, that even God's throne is on the move? We see the nations and the beasts are stripped of all authority and judged before that heavenly host. And then we see one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and is led into God's presence and is given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and every tongue worship him. This son of man, Bar Ennis, in Aramaic means human being. Just think about that for a moment. One like a human being led in, in heaven into God's presence and given dominion, glory and kingship. Humanity in heaven, heaven and earth brought together. A couple of thoughts on this son of man. The first being that it represented God's people. Three times the saints or holy ones are told they would receive the kingdom. That's us. Verse 18, but the saints, the holy ones of the Most High, will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Verse 22, God pronounces judgment in favour of the saints of the Most High 
and the time came when they would possess the kingdom. Verse 27, then the sovereignty, power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. We included as God's people will receive this inheritance. How amazing is that? The second thought that, that, that this one like a son of man referred to an individual and Jesus clearly used this reference which I'll come on to in a minute. But I hope you can see why this book and chapter had a massive effect upon the people of Israel as it gave them hope. Hope when their nation seemed all but destroyed. Hope when God seemed distant and far away that they had not been abandoned by him. Hope that God had a plan to rescue his people and that one day establish his kingdom forever. And we share that hope in Jesus. So lastly, I'd like to share why this chapter is important for us. Stanley Greedness, whose book on Daniel has been greatly helpful for me in looking at this, states that there are 58 New Testament references that allude to Daniel, chapter 7, and many of them are in the book of Revelation. But just looking at a few in the Gospels, when Jesus announced in Matthew 12, verse 28, that the kingdom of God had come upon you, he was announcing the kingdom proclaimed in Daniel 7. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus frequently referred to himself as the Son of Man. In fact, it was his favourite term in reference to himself. This Son of Man had authority to forgive sins, he, quote, he says in Matthew 9 verse 6. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he says, in Matthew 12 verse 8, just to name a couple. But Jesus knew that his listeners immediately understood exactly where this reference was taken from and that he was referring himself to the one like a son of man in Daniel 7. And then when Jesus is arrested and questioned before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest in Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. He's asked if he is the Messiah. And Jesus' response says, says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. In this response, Jesus takes from Daniel 7 and also from one of the Psalms, he seals their determination to have him murdered. So as I draw to a close, you know, I appreciate that this talk this morning has not had many personal stories or testimonies in it. But can I encourage you to read this passage, to draw hope and strength from it? Let this passage bring hope in the midst of the trials that we face in our day. They are different, but we too can gain strength that our Father is on the throne. 
For me, as I looked at these verses, I reminded of the reasons why I gave my life to Jesus all those many years ago. I am so grateful that in the midst of our human history and frailty, Jesus entered our world. Jesus became an exile, an exile by his own choice, giving up his presence with the Father to come to us, to establish a new kingdom, God's kingdom, not one described like an animal, but one that would fill the earth, that is glorious. In the midst of the big story of world empires, God sent his son so that each one of us could know him individually and know his love, know his life and his presence in the midst of our difficulties. He may be God over the nations, but he shows his love to all who call out to him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. But it is the father's good pleasure to give that kingdom to his son, Jesus, and all who are called by his name. So in closing, if there is anyone watching this morning who has never invited Jesus into their life, we may have troubles, we may be in a pandemic, but like Daniel, God will walk with us every day throughout our lives. And one day we will fully enter into his everlasting kingdom as an inheritance that to quote Peter in 1 Peter 1 verse 4, will never perish, spoil or fade. Thank you.